Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here with Brad Edwards, and we're seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. Today, we are bringing you part two of our conversation with Mark Sayers. Mark is an author, most recently of Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal and the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. He's also the pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. He hosts a couple podcasts, the Rebuilders podcast, as well as this cultural moment. It was really listening to this cultural moment that led Brad and I to start our own podcast. And as Brad and I explore the themes of kingship, the kingship of Jesus and living in light of his kingdom, we're constantly coming back to something we heard Mark say, that secularism is the desire for the kingdom without the king. And so we sat down with Mark to explore that in more detail. Mark is one of the keenest observers of culture that I've ever encountered. In part one of our conversation with Mark, we talked about the ways the COVID-19 crisis has disrupted the global system. If you haven't listened to that yet, be sure to just hit pause and go back and listen to that first and then come back and continue this episode. But really, the reason that we had that conversation is so that we could get to some of the questions we're discussing here today. Brad and I started this podcast because we wanted to help Christians lean into the kingdom opportunity in the midst of this crisis. And Mark has often observed that crisis precedes renewal. So we asked Mark, what opportunities do you see for the church in this moment? I've heard you say multiple times, uh, crisis precedes renewal. All we're seeing right now is maybe the crisis. Uh, what is what is the opportunity? Um, big picture. Yeah. Um, I know that's, that's, a, that's a totally wide open question. Oh, totally. But. I think it was George Hunter who said, um, you're talking about evangelism, Methodist um, theologian, that you look for the gaps between idols. And mm. I, I feel like we're moving from one set of idols, um, which are passing, um, and the U.S. is in particular, to another set of idols which are growing. But there's a gap. Um, uh, Philip Jenkins, I think, said too in his book, The Next Christendom, that you know, he talked about the amount of people who become Christians moving to the West from Buddhist or Islamic countries because they move and all of a sudden uh, all of how they understood the world is up, up in the air. Um, they don't speak the language. Mm. Uh, they're, they're in a new place. They don't have the connections, the friendships. Um, you know, I used to do ministry in Melbourne with Japanese backpackers and, you know, I went to Japan and spoke at a conference there and every, almost every Japanese Christian I met was like, oh, hi, yeah, I became a Christian in Germany. I became a Christian in, in Canada, all of them overseas because they go in this process where they're in such a homogeneous, strong culture mm. that Japan is, and then they're out of it and they just don't know what to do. And mm. I remember even one Japanese guy saying to me, like, even the sky is freaking out in a way because in Australia there was open skies. Where in Japan it's always skyscrapers. So even that he feels disorientated, like I can see the sky. And so I feel like we're actually at one of those moments. Um, you know, one of the things that I say too is like, you know, I felt God really encouraged me to talk about renewal a couple of years ago and I feel like he had me ahead. And I look back now and go, honestly, did I think that was going to happen? Like, so I have been saying crisis precedes renewal. And what, what did I think that was? You know, was that just going to be like, I don't know, the internet's really slow today. Um, I got my coffee, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes late. Like, yeah, this has happened throughout history. We're not immune. Um, and, you know, I feel there's this, this moment. And I'd say for America, Adam Alkus, um, who's a blogger, wrote, he said America's in an omni-crisis. You know, it's not like, mm. I, think, I think Melbourne is in a crisis. We're in a coronavirus crisis. 
Melbourne yeah. and Australia is still pretty stable, and um, but America is multiple crises and and could be heading to you know in November possibly a constitutional crisis. Um, if you look at the 1970s in America, like in many ways there was this growth and the growth of the evangelical movement. It, oh, a second win of the evangelical movement happened in the 80s, and you know had like Jimmy Carter come onto the scene. A lot mm-hmm. of that comes out of the dis- dislocation of the 70s. Um, the Jesus move- movement, Jesus people movement, also kicks off in the 60s and 70s in response to the religious energy, in a sense that is is in in the culture. Um, so I sort of feel like America. Uh, Shadi Hamid, who, you know, again, American political commentator, Muslim guy, really interesting views on stuff. And also Samuel Goldman, who's a Jewish American political scientist, both said something similar. They said America has this revivalist pattern. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of mm-hmm. feel like Australia doesn't have a revivalist pattern. There have revivals which have happened in Australia, but they're church based revivals. America's just going to keep doing great awakenings. But are they going to be Christian great awakenings is the new question. Mm. So I see America's mm. trying to do a, an awakening. Like they want to move beyond, you know, the historical injustices of race. They want to deal with inequality. They want to move away from radical individualism. So many people do. But how is that going to be done? Is that going to be done, you know, by turning to Christ um, mm. and, and bowing to him and realizing that even religious-driven, you know, social justice goals done in the flesh weirdly end up becoming ungodly and, and get, yeah. you know, sort of rotted from the inside. Um, so I see the crises we have to reframe as opportunities. And it's a, that's mm. a cliched and it'll always sound cliched, heard it in a million I don't know, business seminars, but it's actually true. Like mm. there's an element that it's easily said and recounted, hard to do. So I see a fundamental opportunity for the U.S. I feel like the U.S. had to fall a bit further. And I'm going to speak honestly and candidly because that's yeah, one of the do. parts of Australian culture. There was a pride yeah, in the US. America yeah. has a pride. When you're number one, if you're number one in your class, if you're number one at your university, that can pride can, can attach to you. And America had an incredible run post-war. It became the most powerful country in the world. Um, the most, um, you know, it's it, like the fact that I sort of have to do cultural exegesis on America. Our news is dominated by America more than local news. Um you know, all the Christian books are from America here. And so much mm-hmm. that I'm so thankful for, you know, my bookshelf is filled with wonderful American Christian authors who've taught me and, 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 and personally, but I felt mm-hmm. like for, for a genuine renewal has always come at moments. You know, look at the, look at the, with the Welsh revival. This was amongst people who were at a time when a coal mining industry was coming to an end. Hmm. who had worked like absolute, you know, like worked themselves to the bone underneath the hmm. ground. And then God does this thing in Wales, which has got a history of being looked down on in Britain uh, and, and in, uh, you know, a sense hmm. of its relationship with England. Um, you know, really interesting, like my, my sister-in-law who works with me at church and does heaps of our administration, you know, she was born in um, a Thai refugee camp as a Cambodian um, refugee, her family, um, came over the border, and in that in that camp, amongst former Khmer Rouge soldiers against displaced people um, who had lost everything, um, there was a revival, and mm. some Americans came across, and that spread around mm. the world. And you know, so we want the revival, but we don't want the displacement. Mm. And 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 I think, yeah, it, it's it's America. There's an honesty that I have to have in Australia because I know I'm not going to get power. I, I have mm. no illusions that it's a minister. I know my whole life, I went to ministry, everyone thinks mm. I'm a weirdo. Mm. Um, in America, I can be on a plane, and I've, I've done this. I've sat next to very sort of progressive people who I know would look down on the church, but they can talk the lingo. I oh, say so you're a pastor. Like, a lot of Australians would go, wouldn't even know what a pastor is. 
Um, mm. They got some idea of a Catholic priest or something in their head. They, they, they get shocked, you know. Um, we, we have an evangelical prime minister, but it's almost accidental. You know, there was this there was this thing where he um, he prayed for you know, the bushfires, and he sort of did it on his iPhone, and it sort of just went on some like underground. It was literally like he'd been caught out, like having an affair or something. Almost, you know, there was this wow. fascinating bit where he 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 went to um, church, and there was someone took a photo of him hands in worship. He had his arm up with this, and they were like, "Is that a Nazi salute? You know, what is this? You know, like just oh, utterly man. no way of understanding." Yeah. But then, what's really interesting wow. is. You know, so it doesn't play off in the same way. But he he doesn't expect to have power. So he'll give pre- prime ministerial speeches, and you can you, us Christians look on the back, going, "Hang on, there's that there's that evangelical you know history of theology book." Like, <laughs> so, but it's not it's not front and center. And yeah. um, so you know, the first church in Australia was burnt down, got no money from the government, was burnt down, and they oh. built a science center before you know, sort of science research center before they ever built a church in Australia. So there's this sense that I think what's happening in America is a great displacement of power, mm. and that's painful. And I think both the mainline church and evangelical churches, I mean, look at the rose, for me as an Australian, looking at that Rose Garden potential super spreader event, I'm looking and going, yeah. why, hang on, who are all these, what, how are all these pastors in on this? This is bizarre. I know. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but I think that that what perhaps the rest of the world can tell America, and Australia is a very comfortable country, and other countries can tell, you know, Kenyans can tell this story better than me. Um is that when you do lose some sense of earthly power, you open up the potential then of spiritual power, which comes through dependency on Christ. Yeah, Bryce and I have been talking about how the there is it, it really feels like there's a fear driving uh, evangelical political engagement because it's like if we lose this influence that we have we have been enjoying and had, then that's the end of the church. And but we've we've been talking about how like this is just not historically backed up at all because the the church is growing in the places across the globe where there is the least comfort, the least privilege, the least the least cultural influence, and the least power. And and we know that is the case because of what you were what you started off by talking about is when we come up against the finiteness of our humanity, um, whether it's because we can't economically provide for our families anymore, that puts us into this place of of openness to a dependency on a higher power. And I'm curious what you think about this, because with what you were just describing about virtualism and and just the, the war over reality and reality being politicized, on the one hand, it seems like the finiteness that is our human capability to to even absorb all the information that's coming at us right now mm. could could become a an, a renewal revival opportunity that is connected to an omniscient God that God can know everything and He mm. is sovereign and He still has us His righteous right hand and that mm. can't be threatened and yet I think the thing that worries me in the midst of this is how easily reality can be redefined right now mm. and so it's it's possible that that. That that discomfort that could uh, lead to dependence, we will never like hit a critical mass point. Like we can avoid yeah. it still. Yes, yes, yes. A really interesting. Marshall McLuhan, Canadian media theorist, um, you know, Catholic had a had a Christian worldview. He talked about there's going to be a point as more and more information is released into the world that it becomes overwhelming, and people are going to look for what he called the old mythic patterns of belief. Hmm. And I think that's such a great comment. And I think that's what's happening. And I look at the rise of conspiracy theories, things like QAnon, which is even taking off here now, which is just totally bizarre. And wow. um, that that and I, and I had this moment. So I was down the shops here 
at the butcher. We on our one visit to the shops we can do as a single person a day and <laughs> to get some food. And I see two guys. So you have to wear a mask outside here. It's a thousand dollar fine or whatever it is. I don't know if you don't wear a mask. I see two guys not wearing masks and like it shocks you now because everyone's got a mask on. Oh, and sure. I'm like, who, yeah. who are these guys? And I see them. And I'm like, they have, and they're very sort of standing there, like without their mask on. And and guy turns around, and this is in Melbourne, Australia, and he has a Stars and Stripes Q T-shirt on. Whoa! I heard their accents; they weren't Americans. And I just like this. Whoa! This is insane. Like, if you told me that ten years ago, I would not have believed it. And it's taking off here weirdly in the new age. The weirdest thing we have here in the new age movement, it's it's really taking off QAnon here and the wellness movement is this big thing. And um, you're seeing like people who are like um, anti-Trumpers and very left-wing are now coming out as pro-Trumpers in that community, which is just so as Australians, so bizarre. Hmm. Um, So so Trump is a figurehead pro or like for or against not in the U S sorry, say that again. Sorry. So, so Trump is serving as a kind of either uh, you know, messianic figure or a uh satan figure messianic. outside of the u.s in 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 australia so so everyone like if, if, i just saw some stats from europe and in australia there's a wide dislike of trump even amongst conservatives and um but what's interesting is you now got this conspiratorial edge so there was a protest against the lockdown it wasn't huge maybe like 300 people in the city here and there was lots of people wearing make america great hats and trump t-shirts in Germany, there was, I think it was like 40, 30, mm. almost 40,000 people. And many of them had Trump banners and Trump gear in Germany. And, huh. you know, Putin loved Trump's sort of thing. So Putin and Trump have almost taken on this civilizational thing, which even transcends American politics as this figure linked in with conspiracy theories. But it's almost a religious reading, you know. And yeah. I know lots of, like, not lots, but I know sort of punk rock left wing type guys. Um, here who all of a sudden now are sort of like Trumpy and I'm like, this is blowing my mind. So for me, the fact that what I think what is going on is that as, as you used to be able to control the world and there was, there was one story being told, which was the dominant mm-hmm. sort of post-Christian secular story that is shattering mm-hmm. and fragmenting. It's utterly mm-hmm. physically overwhelming. I mean, even I found myself, you know, you, I, I talk about this stuff all the time. I had to pull, you know, when the whole Trump got Corona, you know, you've always got to stop yourself going on Twitter and took Twitter off my, my phone. Cause you're just like, it's, this, it's, re- but it's augmented reality. So I'm here yeah. in Australia. Man. I'm not in America. I'm it's not my country. I can't vote. You know, I've got a whole situation here, but I'm following this emotively and people in Australia where my parents are texting me like, do you think he's got it? You know, like, and, um, so, so I see that you're right. There's an opportunity here because people are now utterly overwhelmed with the world. Mm. And before the, the preacher, get back to Jonathan Edwards day, the preacher was often the most educated person in town. They were like the newspaper. They would often, you know, go into the big city and come back with information. They knew maybe the politicians mm. and they would interpret the mm. world and often announcements in church or bulletin or whatever you want to call it was also local news. Cause that was the only place everyone, you know, so they'd say, you know, the, sure. this road has collapsed there. up there or something. Yeah. Now it's changed that we now are guides through all of it. But mm. what's also happening is it's a profound power shift in that it's the powers move from the pulpit to the phone. Mm. So now pastors have this much more weakened position, particularly in the US, where you've got much more hot sort of culture mm. of, you know, why aren't you taking this sort of stand or, you know, on the Black Lives Matter stuff? And then the next person's like, no, hang on, that's filled with critical race theory. And then all of a sudden you've got some poor pastors like trying to Google 
you know, Foucault and what is bio, you know, politics. Have and you been spying was, on me, Mark? I mean, that's, that's, that's no, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing this everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's that. And then it'll be something next week, you know, like what is climate change real? Isn't it? You know, the, yeah. the, you know, so, um, well, and well, too, I, the, the, the engagement with pastors, it's less about, would you please inform us and help us understand this? And it's more of a, you need to take a position to know whether you're on my team or not. Yeah. Would you endorse my view? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's an anti-institutional element to it. So basically yeah. in this new dynamic, because again, too, you're right. We talked about this periods of history where it centralizes power. We're at a moment where it's mm-hmm. decentralizing power. In moments of decentralizing power, Nodes mm-hmm. in the network have more power. So, you know, Moses Naim, who's the Venezuelan thinker and politician, he said that, you know, he, he had a book called um, The End of Power. And he said it's, it's power is easy to get now, but harder to hold on to. So, mm-hmm. you know, you see this. You see J.K. Mm-hmm. Rowling was seen as, you know, she emerged from nowhere, writes these books, and then is seen as this left-wing voice online, but then comes out, um, you know, with a view on feminism, which then cancels her. So there's so many yeah. people like, yeah, like you see them changing, you know. So yeah. I, I think I think that there's an the, the paradigm shift for me is realizing you're not going to get cultural Christians and that it's a remnant church. That is my, that has been mm-hmm. my philosophy mm-hmm. for three or four years. And I begin to mm-hmm. I'd have conversations with young adults after church where you know I'd just be chatting and talking to them and they'd be like, I'm the only one left. My Christian mm-hmm. friends have either not Christians. I'm the only one at work. I, I actually struggle to tell people that because it's so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had this collection, not of people who were there because they're family. It's just like, I'm here. I'm the last one. And it is so much easier doing church with those people. Hmm. Um, so, it's, it's, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated to see uh, um, if, if I can connect these two thoughts. Because on the, on the kind of high-level view of things, I love the idea that, that this is a moment of opportunity for the church. On a practical feet-on-the-ground level, I feel like I'm having a hard time figuring out how those go together because, uh, and some of it, the network reality um, fundamentally changes things. And I mean, this in some ways is what you were talking about. The fact that there are punk rockers in Australia who are now Trump supporters speaks to how the, the, the network is, uh, people are being discipled through the network. And the difference, it seems like, between kind of this network age and using the the Reformation as a kind of counterpoint is that the network still in, in during the Reformation had to be in an embodied context. And now we've got people who are being far more discipled by their phones, social media, and cable news than they are by their local churches. So... Yeah. How do we how do we how do we think about that as pastors when we're we're wanting to shape people in in the way of Jesus, lead them towards a kingdom way of life. And yet we've got them maybe best case scenario an hour or two a week if we can gather in person at all, which is not happening for most of us right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, I think you've, I'm sure you've seen this. The Barna Group just released a report a couple of weeks ago that in America, one in three Christians have stopped going to their church, not stopped mm-hmm. attending services in person, but they're just leaving their churches. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we actually, uh, not just speak into this moment, but how do we disciple people when they're connected, you know, to everything online. Mm. And in some ways, formation is a, isn't like an inherently embodied practice uh, in the church. Yeah. Maybe another way even of just saying that is like, how, how do we convince people 
to join and be a part of the, the institution that they need when by definition, everything that they, we are running and sprinting towards is the opposite? Mm, yeah, great questions. I, <laughs> couple things. Please, f- please, please answer all of these questions. For us. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my is, best. We're really depending on you for this. <laughs> okay, the pressure, the pressure. Um, <laughs> I, I was part of um, Barna's uh, Connected Generation report and delivery in Australia. I'm friends with Dave Kinnaman. And so I did the Australian leg of the tour and um, Malaysia. Um, and what's so interesting for me as an Australian, it was like, wow, this is this incredible view of what actually is happening amongst millennials. And mm. They, they looked at, um, uh, they broke it up into different segments of how those people, you know, would relate to church. The two I'm most interested in is the habitual Christians. I would mm. use the language of cultural Christians. They come to church, but on Barna's standard, are you a biblical Christian? They fail. And it was pretty low bar, to be honest. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was a very low bar that, you know, it could be Catholic, young person, you know, the, read the Bible, you know, trying to follow Christ, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Then the other one was resilient disciples. The resilient disciples were the ones who prayed, share their faith. They're committed to the church. So I can't remember the exact breakdown, but what struck me is I've always thought the American church is bigger. And you can't, we contrast, you know, Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, people in the UK will contrast themselves with America because the church seems smaller. But what was interesting is the amount of resilient disciples per capita was almost the same between Australia and America. Yeah. Yeah, it was only like 10 or 11% in the US, yeah. I think. Yeah. But what was heaps bigger in the US was the habitual Christians. And so, mm. so if, I mean, let's just break this down to really um, um, so stark example, which I think is helpful. So my church in Australia, I believe is a much higher, and, and we just focused everything around resilient disciples. That, that we heard that, and like, that's what we're going for. So a church in Australia, I would say, have, is more likely to have a much higher amount of resilient disciples, where a church in America will have a much more, higher percentage of habitual Christians. So in the room, and this is where Sundays can fool you and pre-COVID could fool you because you could go to a church and it's full and there's even people there getting into worship. It looks great. Everyone's talking. There's a buzz afterwards. There's people having coffees. This looks fantastic. I'm doing well. But actually, when you then put over that the Barna layer, you almost need to get rid of, you know, and if you're, here's a question. There's a difference between a guy who walks off the street from an alcoholic men's refuge who's absolutely desperate, is wanting the gospel and rocks up to church and his life the night before was not Christian. There's a difference between him and someone who's been coming for 20 years who's a habitual Christian and their life has not changed. And America, I think, has a lot of what's happening in America is I think those habitual Christians. Now, um, that means that that amount you've had to do it. So, like, I feel in Australia, I have not had to deal with as much of the stuff you had to deal with in America because I just got a lower level of habitual Christians, and they've dropped off. And I think, yeah. you know, Australian, Canadian church, whatever, they've dropped off over 30 years. You're mm. having to drop off in three years. Yeah. That's why it feels more traumatic. And so it's just happening so quickly. So, like, stuff I would yeah. look at, so I would look at, you know, I'm coming to, I'm speaking, I won't name where, but, you know, I've been at, like, colleges in the U.S., big seminaries, and they're like, wow, we're really struggling with your money. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is this is like a palace. What are you talking about? That's what I'm yeah. thinking on the inside. You know, come and look at some of our seminaries. You know, great places, but we just haven't got the stuff you've got. So a lot of this is a lot of the ministry models and what was seen as success was based on metrics that were false. Mm. And that's now being exposed. And COVID particularly has exposed that. So mm. we, to explain what I think I've, I felt like how I've approached the pandemic, we, we went early, you know, had the, what everyone else had was we're going online. How do you do all this? You know, 
transitioned and we were about, I don't know, five, six weeks in um, and there was this moment. So what we were doing is we, we've got a small house on the church property we're at. We went into there cause it's smaller, good, you know, it's more achievable. And we had like someone who was hosting, I was preaching. We had like three or four people playing music. Mm-hmm. We played a pre-recorded interview that I did with my, my sort of mentor, Terry Walling, who um, coaches pastors, he's in um, California. And we pre-recorded this and we played it. So we were doing everything live. And then we had a moment where we weren't on live because we were watching this recorded. And Chris, who's on staff, plays keyboard, part of our worship. He just made this comment. He goes, man, this is like a letter from Paul coming to us from California to the church in Australia. Hmm. And in something in my head just went, and I was like, yeah, what if, what if that's actually what we're like now? And so the paradigm shift I all of a sudden went was, hang on, I'm not going to do church with you watching. I'm going to think more like Paul or Peter writing an apostolic letter. And I said to my team, we have to release power. We have to actually give up that we can control this and that we can just hang on. And we're going to, because I feel like everyone's doing like to hang on to church, you know, while the battering winds until the other side of the pandemic. You know, I I think the best, you look, I mean, Fauci said it, and I think he's being optimistic. The best case scenario when a vaccine writes, he's saying 2021, essentially the third quarter of 2021. That's best case scenario. Yeah. You know, and, and if you go deep into the stuff, I mean, I, I'm assuming as a church, I might not meet for two to three years. So how do I now that's, that is the worst hmm. case scenario, but I realized like if, if the pandemic went away tomorrow, we can all snap back. Like we've done it for years. We know what it is. You know, yeah. Yeah. what's harder is planning. Like what if you can't embodily meet like you did? So what mm-hmm. I realized is I felt God say, you're back almost in the new Testament that you're equipping these people to actually do discipleship in their homes. So we do our services different. It's less watching. It's more like, it's almost like just like this. Here's a head talking to you from my home to your home. And we're all doing mm. this together. And I'm just here to equip you. And I said, I, I said, I said to my church, we've had the ball. We've had this laity as a, as a, we're a low church. We're low church Protestants, but we were more into a laity priestly divide than I realized. And mm. if I believe in the priesthood of all believers, you know, I said to my church, I said, we've been holding the ball. I said, I give you the ball. I'm releasing the ball to you and I'm releasing responsibility to you. And I can't make you do this. You've got to choose to push in. So we've seen people who were formerly, you know, quite invested who aren't as much anymore. And we're seeing people who weren't invested who now are more invested. So Mm. I see this as this giant stress test that the church is going through. But actually, you know, Terry said in that interview as well, my mentor, he said, what if this is the moment where the Protestant vision of priesthood believers gets realized? And what was the weakest part of discipleship? What I saw going around America, going around Europe is, you know, I was running with a bunch of people who, and my church was this, we were trying to do sort of culturally relevant Orthodox Christian services mm-hmm. where, you know, we preach the gospel, good worship, but you can, just, you know, people who look like you and we talk about that movie and all of this, you know, and there was, there was a sense where I began to realize where we were losing was in personal discipleship and personal holiness. Mm-hmm. That heaps yeah. of churches you talk about how many people on tinder you know how many people are, are living a christian life so in a sense they could come to a service and wow this is relevant the worship was amazing great sermon and i can sort of do it while i'm here where we were losing is when they went back home mm-hmm. god is yeah. now like allowed that middle thing which we relied on to go and now for me red church has to be a place which is equipping people to do discipleship and church in their homes um, so let me ask and, you a question about, yeah I'd, I'd love to because if if in this conversation we've been talking about how in there's this kind of atomization and individualization that is happening that's increasingly shaping people outside of institutions uh they're being discipled by social media cable media etc um 
help me reconcile that with what you just said in terms of the priesthood of believers. Like, does that not just continue to, to maybe decentralize uh, in ways that are actually going to incentivize that, that atomization? And I, and I ask this because like in my context, I'm in, I'm in Boulder County, Colorado, right? So we, this is not the Bible Belt. Um, and like our people don't even know how to read the Bible. We, we don't have a hermeneutic. And if we're kind of, you know, releasing that power, as you put it, at the same time that we are most shaped by liturgies, not Christian, that, that feels like a, I mean, I mean, this is probably me being, uh, you know, American uh, uh, saying this, but like, that seems like a huge jump off the cliff, not just a uh, dump, jumping with both feet. That's like, mm-hmm. yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So, so, so a couple of things. Firstly, I was in a conversation second half of last year in a sort of discussion with some leaders and I'll, I'll leave it loose. And <laughs> there's details. And there was a couple of leaders there talking about online church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I opened the full response you know, Mark, the cultural commentator response about embodiedness and social media and my concerns and big tech and I was dropping words like digital surveillance and all this and it sounded wonderful and pushed right back. And <laughs> the awesome. need that, you know, we're like, you know, we're embodied people, Jamie Smith and you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hey, we're, we're card-carrying members of that fan club. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was very much me. I then get a visit a bit later on. We, we have in Melbourne lots of Persian people from Iran and Afghanistan. And I think I got a visit from a ministry of people um, who are doing ministry to Persian people throughout the world and just got time to spend a couple of hours with them. And, you know, they, they show me what they're doing. They can't meet in Afghanistan and Persia uh, or Iran, sorry, in the way that we can. Um, so the way that they were having to do it was people in houses and they would, in England or Germany, produce these services. And it was a guy preaching. It was people doing worship. And this was just growing at an incredible rate. More Persians have come to faith in the last 10 years than in the last 10 centuries. And um, it's, it's a revival um, in, hmm. in, this, in the you know, it's textbook sense. Um, and it's happening everywhere from Stockholm to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Um, and I honestly, at the end of that meeting, went back to my office and I honestly felt for because what I realized was they don't have a choice. Hmm. I was viewing this when I had privilege and a choice. And I, I, you know, that word privilege can be politically filled, but I did have the privilege. I, I could meet in person. I could make a choice again. Persian people have no choice. And like what, what for them, it's not like I go outside and have to wear a mask. It's like I could get killed or thrown in jail. And when the pandemic hit, I remembered that. And a lot of my friends were freaking out like, oh man, oh, what's going to happen? You know, but I thought we don't have a choice. Hmm. I, I don't have a choice. Like I'm not the government here. I'm not, I'm not, you know, and you know, I was on a podcast very early on with an epidemiologist who's an expert on a coronavirus and had a chance to speak off air. I was like, early on, I was like, okay, this is for real. Like this is very real. And this is going to be hugely disruptive to the world. And I gave up a lot of control. So in my fear, I always believe, and what I've, my thing is I'm, I'm an ideas guy. I read lots. I always come back to trying to do that in a church in Australian post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm. And it's that praxis thing of like theory and practice. Totally. So I, I see the pandemic in this way. It's not going to go forever, whether it's six months, whether it's three years. There'll be a point where we go, I remember that thing, you know. Um, the Spanish flu ended and there was a different world after the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. I see we have to view this as an interim period. Um, mm-hmm. This is a weird interim period that God has allowed. World War II was a weird interim period that God allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Black Death in Europe completely changed. You can even see the Black Death is a precursor to the Protestant Reformation, which all these people all of a sudden started to see their mortality and people like Thomas Akempis, you, know, you could see almost the proto-Protestant evangel- you know, hmm. um, yeah. uh, thing happening. And I feel this is an interim period where 
only a unique thing can be done that can't normally be done. I know I will have to do services again. I know that we're going to regather in embodied form. But in this interim thing, which I don't have control over, I can't, you know, I'm not going to go John MacArthur and, you know, like do some rebellion against the state. Um, I don't think it's biblically wise. And I I don't don't agree with it. And, okay, so what can I do in this time Mm -hmm. that I can't do? So I see it as an isolation exercise. Um, You know, I saw this, I was watching Seinfeld late one night and there's a thing where Kramer buys these particular shoes that isolate the muscles in his feet so he can dunk. And I remember seeing that. I thought, that's actually like what's going on now. We're isolating a muscle that we don't normally use for a limited period of time and we'll return and hopefully we'll be able to do something that we couldn't do before. Hmm. So I feel like prognostications that this is the future, I, I, and I believe what this is doing is actually hung, giving people hunger for community. In a couple yeah. of the weeks where we were able to sort of open up a little bit, and I went to my brother's house and we went to the park and you could gather in groups in the park. And I saw this group of teenagers, like 16 to 18 in a circle, talking animatedly for two hours, no phones. Mm, wow. I've not seen that in years. Yeah. I've got people who just are hanging mm. to get together and just like, like I, I've spoken to singles at our church, young adults who like, I've not hugged anyone. Like I realized that mm. I can do sermons. I've just utterly missed community. I miss those who I love. And yes. I feel like it's like, you know, if you, if, you eat, if you love Mexican food and you eat it every week and then you move to a country where there's no Mexican food, that first Mexican meal back is going to be amazing. And I think that's actually where we're, so we've got to see this as an interim period. The world, are, I don't think we're going to snap back. There's profound changes happening in the world. Hmm. But my hope is that when I come back, so our slogan was come back stronger. Hmm. So use this interim time to come back stronger. So I, I'm, I'm not going to start a house church movement after this. Hmm. Um nothing against people who do my particular thing the call on, on red is is i don't feel that's what we're called to do there is something about the embodied thing when we can see other people um right. i don't think it's just going to be a digital thing but you know what right. i'm also learning stuff i've got i've gotten emails in my email box of people who could not come to church because of a life situation whose lives and faith has been deepened by watching red church services hmm. um they're Americans who've jumped onto our service because time difference, they can turn on Saturday night, who in the midst of their churches, which have literally just gone into political war, have been watching our service going, it's such a blessing to be yeah. in your service, even if it's just for this pandemic to get me through this. So God's using my church in ways I could never imagine. People on the other side of town. Now, I don't know what that looks like on the other side. I believe you know, I'm 100% an embodied community guy, but I want to take out of this moment the most that God is mm. putting before us. Wow. Wow. Mark, this is this has been great. I, I know uh, we want to be respectful of your time um, and just thank you so much for being with us. I wonder if I could just ask you before we leave, I know a lot of people listening uh, to our, pod, our podcast are other pastors, other uh, thoughtful Christians that are just trying to be faithful in this time. And I think there's this general sense that, that pastors are tired and struggling right now and have been uh, kind of uh, thrown into situations that we were never prepared for uh, in a time that has felt more chaotic and more turbulent than maybe any in our lifetime. I wonder if there's any just encouragement that you could leave with us. Mm. I, I, first of all, I just recognize how hard it is and how people feel stretched beyond themselves. Um, they feel in some ways, I'm going to be honest, like disrespected that people no longer respect them, that they're a symbol that people are writing all their desires and wishes and frustrations and anger, or even just this almost messianic looking to us for things that only Jesus can give. Mm. 
when I when I read the great Christian leaders of history, despite even their theological or denominational backgrounds, there's just a moment where they all hit crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about John Wesley on that boat across the Atlantic where he's fearing for his life and he looks at these Moravians. I think of Moravians who were refugees from Moravia who find themselves on the estate of Count Zinzendorf. I look at, you know, uh, John Calvin, Jean Calvin, who's actually a French religious refugee in Geneva. That's not his city. He didn't want to mm-hmm. be there. He, he was taken from his life of study and found himself pastoring. That's not what he asked for. Um, you know, I think of Dwight Moody, who is overcome walking through the streets of New York and has to go upstairs just to get himself like, like right with God, like, and God, mm-hmm. you know, comes upon him. And I, I, I think about, um, you know, like Watchman Nee, who goes to a, a Chinese communist camp, you know, and we never see from this man who wrote these books, we never see from again, disappears, dies mm-hmm. in, a, in a camp. Um, you know, Ignatius Loyola started the Jesuits was hit by a cannonball <laughs> and his life was changed. And there's this, there's this crisis moment in so many leaders' lives where you get to and you're like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this absolute death because it is. And when you think about the mm-hmm. gospel that we follow, what, what do we believe? We believe that, you know, the gateway to this whole new incredible life that God gives us goes through a cross. Yeah. And Jesus said that we're going to have to take up our cross to follow him. And in the midst of this, there's a cross moment where we get to see that truth of the gospel, that we can't do this. <laughs> like, like, you know, we can't through absolute grit and determination bring about the kingdom of God. God is bringing about the kingdom of God. God is the only one who can bring salvation in the world. And when we get to that moment, like where you can't look at the emails anymore, you can't look at your Instagram feed because people are writing different political things, you're utterly overwhelmed. That's the moment to step back into the reality that the great men and women of God got to a point where they're overwhelmed and they switched that out to being overwhelmed by God. A moment of singularity where it's just them and him. And so in the midst of this crisis, personal renewal always leads to corporate change and personal renewal is preceded by crisis. And I feel like the missing link in all of this, like, okay, I'll put it this way, crisis precedes renewal, but not always. The transitional point is humility and realizing that God can do it and you can't. And God is just wanting supple clay. He's wanting empty vessels um, who, in a sense, are watching the culture, but also know when to turn it off and just walk outside. You know, encourage people, walk outside, put your phone down, turn the news off, walk outside and look at, look, stand in nature or even a busy street and just go, God is here. He's moving history towards his end. Christ has triumphed. The cross is glorious and transcendent of every moment. And and that that is whose side you are on. And he's reaching out to you with every resource that you need. And as Paul said, when we're weak, we're strong. And I think America is going through a weakening and it's going to be hard. And I'm not going to you know do the positive thinking thing. Say it's going to be brilliant. If you just do this, you'll get a Ferrari. That actually, <laughs> but what you, what you might get is an understanding of the kingdom of God. And I believe that what I, I just felt, I, when I was in America last year, I just felt something and I was walking and praying the streets and I felt a heaviness, a real heaviness and a burden of God's heart for American culture and the inequality. And, and you can just see on the, you know, as Australian, you can see the injustices and different things on the street and, the, and a culture running away from God and running into religiosity and all these things. And I just felt like my prayer was on the other side of this, whatever this crisis is, bring up a new cohort of humble leaders mm. who are holy, who are hungry for God, and who are humble. 
the mm. gateway to the next thing that God wants to do in America. And one of America's key idols is power, power. Mm. The mm. next season of this is for people who don't look to earthly power, but look to Holy Spirit's power, God's power, the power of the kingdom, which comes when we realize our weakness. So if you're feeling bad, this sounds, I understand, but it's actually good because there's an opportunity to fall on your knees yet again before that cross and realize what he did for you and that you don't have to do this. You just have to follow behind in his way. Mark Sayers, thank you so much uh, for that word. Thanks for your time and your, your insights. Um, really appreciated being with you. Thank you. My pleasure. This is awesome. Yeah. We're going to definitely have to have you back uh, the next time we read yes. an article. <laughs> <laughs> thank you Thanks so much, guys. Me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. Also, please join us at kingandkingdom.community to join in the conversation around our podcast and get additional resources. You can learn more about Mark Sayers by subscribing to his podcast, The Rebuilders, and his most recent book, Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal and the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture, is available at Amazon.com and everywhere else you find your books. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back later this week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.